When the king gets furious and tries to have the prophet seized, presumably for arrest or something worse, the hand with which he gestured became useless. Apparently, God had struck the king. Humiliated, the king implores the prophet to pray in his behalf. The prophet does, and the king is healed on the spot. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In this week's podcast, we will deal with an extremely strange story. It involves a prophet who gets badly fooled by another prophet. How can that be? Does not a prophet have an advantage of knowing God's will? Does not a prophet have special spiritual and religious insight? If prophets are sometimes reputed to know the future in advance, how could a prophet let his or her guard drop in a way that allows for profound gullibility? Attempting to answer these perplexing questions, let's take a look at 1 Kings chapter 13. The story begins by introducing a nameless prophet. Here he is called a man of God, one of the typical ways that the Bible refers to prophets. That's in verse 1 of chapter 13. He came from Judah and traveled to Bethel. Remember that Bethel was one of two cities in which the new king of Israel now representing only the northern kingdom, had erected two golden calves as objects of worship. Recall also that the new king, Jeroboam, had led a group of Israelites to Rehoboam's inauguration to demand a reversal of Solomon's oppressive policies. Rehoboam's stubbornness eventuated in Israel splitting into two, a northern segment and a southern segment. Jeroboam became the new king in the north, and almost immediately introduced two golden calves to set up worship centers in Bethel and Dan. Today's story depicts Jeroboam standing at the altar in Bethel, about to burn incense, a way of describing an idolatrous practice. It is at that point that the prophet from Judah begins to speak. As you might imagine, the object of the prophet's wrath is the altar on which Jeroboam was burning incense. Of course, the oracle is not about the altar per se, but about the people who are using it to engage in idolatrous worship. In this instance, the king is being targeted even though the prophet is talking as though the altar had ears. In any case, the prophet said that in the future, another king, a man by the name of Josiah, would eventually rule over Judah. This king would punish any personnel who at that time were still worshiping at this unholy altar. That's in verse 2. Ultimately, this altar would be destroyed. That's in verse 3. Once Jeroboam heard this diatribe, He was incensed, the pun is intended. 
The king gestured toward the prophet and ordered that his men grab him. Clearly, Jeroboam wanted to punish this prophet for his temerity and provocation. However, when the king pointed to the prophet, his hand shriveled up, a sign that he had evidently been struck by God. That's in verse 4. Not only that, on account of the prophetic denunciation, the altar itself was somehow destroyed at that very moment. All of a sudden, the king went from being angry to being compliant. He begged the prophet to pray so that his hand would be destroyed. That's in verse 6. The prophet prayed, and the king's hand became as it had been before. Obviously relieved, the chastened king wanted to give a reward to the prophet. He had forgotten the prophet's criticism and said nothing about the prophecy about Josiah. All he could think about now was a fitting way to thank the prophet. So, Jeroboam invited the prophet to his own home, where he would provide him with refreshment and a gift of some sort. But the prophet was not interested. In his refusal of the king's invitation, the prophet noted that even a huge reward, as much as half his house, would not persuade him. Not only did the prophet not want a reward, he was not even willing to have a bite or enjoy a drink at the king's house. This was because God had expressly forbidden him not to eat or drink with anyone after he delivered his oracle. As well, the Lord wanted the prophet to go home by taking a different route from the one he had taken to get to Bethel in the first place. That's in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 13. Having refused the king's offer, the prophet went home on a different road. At this juncture, the story seems quite straightforward. An Israelite king is engaged in idolatrous behavior when a prophet appears to condemn him. When the king gets furious and tries to have the prophet seized, presumably for arrest or something worse, the hand with which he gestured became useless. Apparently, God had struck the king. Humiliated, the king implores the prophet to pray in his behalf. The prophet does, and the king is healed on the spot. The king's subsequent offer of a meal and reward is not accepted by the prophet, who claimed he was under strict divine orders not to stop to eat, and also to go home using an alternate route. There we have it. A disobedient king encounters an obedient prophet. Is the point of the story to let us know that good prophets are always lurking around to call bad kings on the carpet? Perhaps, but that seems a tad simplistic or even moralistic for a biblical story. As it turns out, there is more to this episode, much more. In fact, this first section is only a prelude to the main story. The story goes in a completely different direction when another prophet inserts himself into the scene. The second prophet is described as an old man. He happened to live in Bethel. A son, or maybe sons, 
informed the old prophet what had transpired when the first prophet had spoken to Jeroboam. That's in verse 11. After asking about the road the man had taken to leave town, the elderly prophet requested that an ass be saddled. Riding the animal, the old prophet went after the man of God, eventually reaching him while he was sitting under a tree. That's in verses 12 through 13. Wanting to know whether the man of God had indeed come from Judah, the old man got a positive response. That's in verse 14. Then the old prophet invited the man of God to go home with him for a meal. That's in verse 15. However, the man of God from Judah answered just as he had when Jeroboam had previously invited him. Namely, he refused. The rationale remained the same. The prophet from Judah insisted that the Lord had told him quite specifically not to stay and eat with anyone, and moreover to return to Judah using another road. That's in verses 16 through 17. But the elderly prophet would not take no for an answer. Instead, he countered that he also happened to be a prophet, and that, in fact, an angel had changed God's original orders. The angel's new orders were that the elderly prophet was to bring the man of God from Judah back home for a meal. That's in verse 18. At this point, the narrator startles us by asserting that what the elderly prophet had said was a complete fabrication. He had lied. Of course, the man of God from Judah had no way of knowing that his counterpart was not telling the truth. So he agreed to go to the old man's house to eat and drink. That's in verse 20. One prophet would naturally assume that another prophet would be truthful. Who knows why the Lord had changed the divine mind? It had happened before, though. This obedient prophet wanted to do what was right. An elderly prophet had just spoken to him. Did his age also give him the aura of wisdom and maturity? Why should he ignore this prophetic word, especially if he was in touch with an angel? In any case, the man of God from Judah listened to the elderly prophet from Bethel. As it turns out, that was a big mistake. When they sat down to eat, an actual word of the Lord came to the elderly prophet. That's in verse 20. This is affirmed by the narrator, who cannot be questioned according to the canons of literary composition. Why the Lord would entrust the divine word to a lying prophet is another matter entirely, one which we will have to puzzle over anon. In any case, the word from the Lord via the elderly prophet denounces the man of God from Judah for disobeying God's explicit original command. For this offense, the man of God from Judah is condemned to an early death. That's in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 13. To say that this scene is enigmatic is a huge understatement. 
As the episode unfolds, the situation becomes even more bizarre. First off, after delivering this awful judgment, the prophet from Bethel saddled an ass for the man of God from Judah. That's in verse 23. As the man of God from Judah continued his journey home, he happened to encounter a lion who proceeded to kill him. As the dead man was lying there on the road, not only did the ass stay right there, but so did the lion. What are we to make of a scene that defies everything we know about a lion or an ass? For example, would not a typical lion kill a prey for the purpose of eating? Even if the lion realized that a human being was not its usual fare, there was an ass right there. Why did not the lion turn its attention to the ass for an easy meal? For that matter, why did the ass not bolt and run for its life at first chance? An ass would know enough to realize that it needed to avoid lions. But none of these usual behaviors transpired. Instead, a corpse beside which both a lion and an ass are standing makes for an absurd scene. Almost surely, we are to infer that the man who was attacked by the lion was how the prophetic word condemning the man of God had been fulfilled. If we are right, then God was behind this. Does the lion's not acting like a lion subsequently, and the ass's not acting like an ass, suggest further divine intervention of some sort? How else can one explain such uncharacteristic actions on the part of these two animals? That is not the end of inexplicable actions, whether from lions, asses, or an elderly prophet. Soon after the man of God had been killed, word about this tragedy came to the elderly prophet from Bethel. That's in verse 26. The elderly prophet immediately expressed his opinion that, indeed, the lion had killed the man of God as a result of God's judgment. That is what we had inferred at the outset. Once the elderly prophet expressed himself, he asked his sons once more to saddle an ass for him. That's in verse 27. Once he had an ass to ride, he retraced his steps and found the place where the dead prophet was still lying. Amazingly, the ass and the lion were still there with the body. That's in verse 28. Indicating that we were correct to conclude that this was completely uncharacteristic lion or ass behavior, the narrator underscored the fact that the lion had not bothered to eat either the man or the ass. Neither the lion nor the ass acted according to type. As well, it is impossible to ignore the fact that the lion did not bother the elderly prophet who had just entered the scene. This is an extremely passive lion. Despite the Hebrew text being a little problematic at this point, it appears that the elderly prophet loaded the body of the man of God onto, quote-unquote, the ass, 
whether the one upon which he had just ridden or the one who had been standing there all along is not specified, and brought the corpse back to mourn and inter it. That's in verse 29. All this time the lion stands by and does not so much as roar. When the elderly man got back, he placed the body of the man of God into his own tomb, thus expressing enormous respect. Both the elderly man and his sons lamented as they referred to the fallen man of God as, quote-unquote, my brother, verse 30. The episode concludes when the elderly prophet gives orders to his sons that when he dies, they are to place his body in the same grave. Leaving nothing to chance, the old man wants to make sure that my bones lie beside his bones. That's in verse 31. The very last thing the elderly prophet from Bethel says speaks to the reason for honoring the man of God from Judah, namely, for his speaking in God's behalf against the altar on which Jeroboam was burning incense and for denouncing the high places in Samaria. All his judgments will surely come to pass, according to the elder prophet. And with that word, the story ends. How are we to read this material as scripture? Should the man of God from Judah, regardless of his initial obedience stance, be criticized for going against God's explicit instructions about not going anywhere to eat and going home another route? That might be our first inclination, but that seems too easy. The old prophet had claimed that an angel countermanded those instructions. Had not the man of God listened? Was he in danger of not only ignoring a fellow prophet, but an angel sent from the Lord? Granted, the old prophet was lying through his teeth, but how was the man of God to know that? This seems a case of the man of God being damned if he did, and damned if he didn't, if he didn't listen to the elder prophet. Keep in mind that there are places in the Bible when God changes the divine mind about a previously mentioned course of action. Famously, Isaiah on God's behalf told King Hezekiah that he needed to set his house in order for he would die soon from an illness. That's in 2 Kings chapter 20 verse 1. When Hezekiah heard this terrible news, he prayed to remind God of all the good he had done. That's in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 20. At once, God changed plans and granted Hezekiah another 15 years, all communicated by Isaiah the prophet. That's in verses 5 to 7 of 2 Kings 20. There's also the famous incident when Moses talks God out of destroying Israel in Exodus chapter 32. There is a handful of stories that accent God's willingness to change the divine mind. The point is, there is precedent for God's change of mind, complete with prophetic involvement. 
how would the man of God from Judah know that this was another example of this phenomenon? Let's consider the old prophet for a moment. What led him to lie in the first place? Was this merely a ham-fisted way of getting the man of God to come to his house? Clearly, elsewhere in the story, he honors his counterpart. He praises the oracle, puts the man's body in his own grave, and arranges for him to share his final resting place with this man. But that is a flimsy reason for such a blatant lie, especially one that had such dire consequences. Was this a matter of prophetic competition? Had the elderly prophet, who was already in Bethel, since that was his home, been miffed that he had not been summoned by God to confront Jeroboam? Or were the old prophet's conflicted emotions the culprit? That is, first he was upset that he had not been asked to deliver the judgment against the king, then he wanted to elevate his own prestige by later association with the man of God from Judah. That explains the dinner invitation and the lie. Then he sensed God's word and had to denounce, however reluctantly, the prophet from Judah. After his prophecy was grimly fulfilled by the lion, the old prophet had a crisis of conscience and did whatever he could to honor the fallen man of God. Other reasons may be postulated for the old prophet's actions, but at the end of the day, we can only speculate. What should we make of the man of God from Judah? He is exemplary, at least initially. He courageously confronts the king, condemns the altar, predicts the later rise of Josiah, and has his prayer for Jeroboam's shriveled hand immediately answered. Plus, he sticks to his guns in refusing the king's invitation, takes another route home, just as God had instructed, and finally refuses to go to the elderly prophet's house due to his consistently obedient posture. What is not to like? The question is, why did he so easily fall for the elderly prophet's ruse about an angel's rescinding God's original instruction. If the man of God was so in touch with God, why did he not try to discern God's will? How about a little prayer, especially in light of how successful his first prayer had been? Did it ever occur to him to wonder why God had changed the divine mind? Surely the man of God knew that there were prophets who were false prophets, people who spoke for money or to stroke a king's ego and the like. Might the elderly prophet be among the false prophets? Again, these questions grow exponentially, but answers are not forthcoming. And what should we say about God in this story? An obedient man of God from Judah had done what God had asked him to do. After the oracle, 
he continued his obedient stance, even though the instructions about not eating or drinking and going home another route seem arbitrary and devoid of religious or moral purpose. Why was God so harsh in the divine condemnation of an obedient prophet? Also, did God not appreciate the irony of delivering a prophetic death sentence through a prophet who had callously lied to put another prophet in danger? Also, almost certainly, the uncharacteristic behavior of the lion and ass suggests divine involvement. But to what purpose? The only person in the story who saw this was the elderly prophet when he came to retrieve the body. Or are we to assume that passers-by witnessed this extraordinary scene, thus making them realize that God had been behind the man of God's death? But there is not a hint of this anywhere. Were the animals still standing beside the corpse when the elderly prophet returned, supposed to say something about this? If so, what exactly? Again, questions abound, but answers are maddeningly elusive. Any interpretation of a story like this requires humility and diffidence. There are so many ambiguities and enigmas. Here is my humble and preliminary effort at interpretation. First, this story is part of former prophets, according to the arrangement of the Hebrew canon. This means that this material deals with prophetic perspective. Second, prophets are never presented as plastic saints. Prophets very often do something very, very good and something questionable. Even famous prophets do not always do what they're supposed to do. Samuel famously made mistakes. Nathan was not above manipulating old King David to ensure that Solomon would succeed David on the throne. Elijah famously thought he was the last prophet to obey God, whereas God said, by the way, I have plenty of prophets elsewhere. Also, this material deals very often with false prophets or prophets who were not originally even prophets. Amos famously was a shepherd and an arborist. Jeremiah did not want to prophesy, but if he withheld, his belly burned, he said. Other prophets were very reluctant. Jonah very much hated speaking God's word because he was so afraid that God would indeed be gracious. So, prophets are very often complicated characters and not straightforward, and certainly, as I said, not plastic saints. Perhaps this material is designed to tell us that we are to sit loosely with dealing with prophetic stories. Many of these stories are going to deal with false prophets, but false prophets sometimes are prophets who are using the right text or the wrong time, or a right text at the wrong time. Sometimes God even sends a lying spirit to the prophets. 
How is someone supposed to deal with that? At the very least, 1 Kings 13 tells us that we have to be very, very careful when we are dealing with prophetic material. We have to discern as best we can. We have to make sure that we are in on solid ground. We have to be aware that sometimes we have to be humble and diffident because a prophetic word may not be what all it's cracked up to be. Think of the time when Jeremiah said, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and the temple of the Lord. And he was criticizing the prophets who were saying, There's going to be peace, there's going to be peace. These prophets were right. There are texts that promise peace for Israel at this time or that time. But Jeremiah said, not now. This is not a time for peace. This is a time to warn about war, military defeat, and even exile. So the prophets were wrong, not because they were simply evil, but because they used either the wrong text at the right time or the right text at the wrong time. So one way or another, 1 Kings 13 tells us to be very, very careful when we are dealing with a prophetic word. Once again, let me ask you to send in any of your questions to fspina106 at gmail.com, and I'll answer them in a subsequent podcast. And also go to my website and indicate your email address to me when we get ready for our mini-courses. Thank you. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, all you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.